The nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. This podcast discusses animals, how they benefit our society and our planet, the threats that they face, and what we can do to protect them. I'm your host, Kristen, and I'm a naturalist by trade. If you want to know more about me and my background, check out my first episode, Who is the Nagging Naturalist? My opinions are my own, and I do not speak for or on behalf of any organization, facility, or institute mentioned in my podcast. Some quick business before we get into the new Animal of the Month. I want to give a quick shout out to Paul of the Varmints Podcast, who let me know that I apparently am on Apple Podcast. Uh, I let Anchor do the distribution for me, and if they don't give me an RSS link for a certain platform, I assume I'm not on it. And I don't have iTunes. I don't use that as a place to listen to like music or podcasts at all. So I had no way of checking on this. So I'm grateful that he reached out and let me know about that because I would have just assumed that Apple had rejected me. So cool. Guess what, guys? I'm on iTunes. <laughs> Go listen. Leave reviews, too. Apparently you can review me on there. Also, uh, podchasers.com is another place where you can review my podcast. Just so you know. In other news, some of you who follow me on social media may have seen the post yesterday about Blackout Tuesday. I did want to give a quick statement about that. I may or may not do a separate announcement that's longer if I feel like I have anything worth saying about it. But I did want to establish that, for the most part, this will, of course, remain a wildlife-focused podcast. But I do believe that there is an intersection between wildlife conservation, and other social issues, because it has been proven that inequality of any form inhibits wildlife conservation. So I do not believe that I can be a wildlife conservationist and fail to support other social issues like violence against black people, uh, violence against transgendered people, so on and so forth. Like there are so many different social issues that need addressing. And I do believe that that is the job also of the environmentalist. If you want to help protect the environment and protect wildlife, you should be addressing these issues, not just because they're conservation issues, but because we're humans and it's the right thing to do. That's my belief. I understand some people will believe differently. Of course, I can't change anybody's mind simply by saying this. I just want people to know that that is my stance. That is what I believe in. I do believe that Black Lives Matters is a valid movement, that it is one that people should listen to, and it's something that people should do something about. I've been a little scarce on social media, not because I don't want to talk about this, but because very often the actions I try to take are more physical and in person. There are some people that are really great about spreading the word on social media. Social media is a good platform to spread messages with. I do not fault anybody that feels like the most that they can do is share information. But for me, living in Baltimore, I want to do more things for my communities directly. And for me, that means marching at protests and doing some of the volunteer work that I do I know I've mentioned that I volunteer in animal care, but I do also have other volunteer jobs that focus on marginalized communities. 
I do work with Meals on Wheels, which helps bring food to people that are homebound for any number of reasons. And I also do work with the Family Tree here in Baltimore, which focuses on reducing child abuse. And in particular, I'm currently working on a project that focuses on LGBTQ youth. And here in Baltimore, since we have a predominantly black community in a lot of places, that means helping these communities with those that are homebound and those that are struggling with their families and who need help and resources to make sure that they can thrive. So that's what is important for me to do during these times. So please don't interpret my lack of social media presence on not caring or not being involved. If there's anybody who feels somehow betrayed by the fact that I address something other than wildlife conservation, I definitely want to establish that these are important issues for me, and I do believe that they matter, both from the context of wildlife conservation, but also from just basic human dignity and rights. So, again, this is still and always going to be primarily focused on wildlife conservation, but there may be times when these issues come up and need to be given voice to and need to be promoted And when those times come, I'm definitely going to be one of those people who speaks up. I do want to try to make sure that even as things settle down, we continue to have this conversation to some degree. I don't know how I'm going to do that just yet because I'm still just trying to do what I can for my community here in Baltimore. And with a college semester right around the corner, I'm already scared of how I'm going to maintain this podcast. But I just want people to be aware this is something that they can expect. This is something that I believe in and don't be surprised when it happens. And that's about all I have to say on that for right now. Like I said, I may expand on this in something separate, but this is meant to be the animal of the month podcast. And so that's what I would like to focus on. However, if you do have uh, questions, comments, or concerns, about these issues and what's going to be brought up, or even better, if you're somebody who wants this to be addressed and may or may not be interested in being on the podcast to talk about it, I would absolutely love to do that. One of the things I do hope to do is reach out to people within various marginalized communities who work in different forms of animal care and wildlife conservation to have these discussions and to help lift up these people's voices, because that does matter to me and it should matter to everybody else, I believe. Getting us back on track with the animal of the month, I hope that you brought an open mind and open heart as we kick off this new episode for the month of June. And today we'll be discussing the environmental, cultural, and economic value of the Egyptian fruit bat. And before we go into the natural history, let me tell you how this animal was chosen because this was not originally what I planned to talk about. I had a different mammal that I was going to do, but since a few other podcasts had done it recently, I decided I didn't want to be redundant. So I reached out to my partner, Barry, about, you know, what mammal I should do. And he recommended a bat. Not anything in particular, just a bat. (laughs) So I looked through the list of animals that I hope to cover throughout my podcast. And while there are a few species of bat that I thought about doing, I wasn't totally committed to any particular species. It's kind of on the fence for a few days. But then last week, 
I received an email from a friend of mine who is in charge of maintaining the stud book for the Egyptian fruit bat SSP for AZA. An SSP is a species survival plan, and it is a program run by AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, to help maintain genetic health of wildlife under human care and for conservation projects, especially those that intend to release endangered or declining species back into their native ranges to basically bolster wild populations. It's a really cool program you should check out because there are AZA-accredited facilities that have helped release animals that were extinct in the wild back into their native habitat, and there are species that could have gone completely extinct that are now recovering because of this program. So it's really awesome, and I was really excited when my friend approached me about this In particular, she had requested pictures I had of Egyptian fruit bats from a visit I had had to the Omaha Zoo last year, and she wanted to use it for an update she was doing for the stud book. And she sent me a copy of her finished stud book, and it featured all eight of the photos I had given her with credit to myself, and it is the first and probably only time my photography will be published, so I figured to celebrate it, I would talk about these bats. (laughs) So that's how they became the Animal of the Month, and I'll share some pictures of the photos that were put into the stud book on my social media. I cannot share the stud book itself. It is only meant for AZA staff and those who are associated with the SSP, which is sometimes outside of AZA, so I'm not allowed to publicly put that out there, but I can share the photos because they are still my photos. I didn't give away the rights to them or anything, so you guys can see all the fun pictures of bats. Let's launch into a little bit of natural history for these bats before we talk about their values. Bats represent the taxonomic order Chiroptera and are generally divided into two suborders. The microchiroptera, or microbats, which are generally echolocating insectivores that mainly are what people envision when they think of bats. Then there's the pteropodidae, or megabats, which are mostly not going to use echolocation, there are a few exceptions, and are typically herbivorous, specifically frugivores, aka fruit bats. (laughs) No need to guess which group these bats belong to because it's in the name, Egyptian fruit bat. Their scientific name is Rosettus egyptiacus, though despite their name and their scientific name, their range extends far outside of Egypt. Most of the range is scattered throughout parts of Africa, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. And they are also found in parts of the Middle East, and even in a few southwestern parts of Asia. Technically, they're also part of Europe, because they can be found on the island of Cyprus, which has traditionally been considered part of Europe. Though geographically, Cyprus is basically part of the Middle East, which is on the Asian continent. So I almost don't like to say that it's a European bat, because... Geographically, that's wrong, but, you know, geopolitics are a weird thing. As fruit bats, they prefer to live near forests and grasslands where fruit is abundant enough to support their colonies. When they are gathering fruit, they will often move from the tree that they found it in to eat in other places, sometimes other trees, but they will even return to their roost in order to eat. Egyptian fruit bats consume the soft pulp and juices of a wide variety of fruits, though they do not eat the seeds, which will be relevant later on. 
They will also eat flowers and even the occasional insect or fungus when fruit is scarce, but they are primarily frugivorous, which means fruit eating. African colonies may have around several thousand bats, whereas outside of Africa, colonies are typically much smaller, being anywhere from a few dozen to a few hundred bats. Unlike other fruit bats, which often roost in trees, Egyptian fruit bats prefer roosting in caves and subterranean habitats, though they may sometimes occupy man-made structures as well, things like abandoned buildings, tunnels, or even mines if it's necessary. Since Rusetus bats are fruit bats, they aren't usually chasing their prey. While it has been found that Rusetus bats can use a different, less developed form of echolocation for microbats to assist in navigation at night, they also make an array of other vocalizations to communicate with each other. Egyptian fruit bats are extremely vocal with each other and have been found to develop unique dialects within their colonies. Now enough of that natural history, let's jump into their environmental value. As I mentioned, they love eating fruit, but they prefer the soft pulp and the juices. They will typically spit out or eat around seeds. They also transport fruit to their colony, which means that they take the fruit away from the parent tree. This transportation of fruit and the seeds means that these bats are great seed dispersers. The role of seed dispersal is very important, particularly in a densely forested region. Seeds may wither and die in the shadow of their parent tree if they simply fall to the ground. However, when animals like Egyptian fruit bats move fruit to new locations, it helps to improve the genetic diversity of the local fruiting plants, regenerates deforested regions, and reduces competition between plants within the ecosystem. Seed dispersal isn't just a service for the plants, though. It is also important for the local wildlife as well, and I don't just mean the bats. Many animals dine on fruit throughout Africa, on the tree or when it falls to the ground. Elephants, monkeys and apes, zebras, warthogs, rhinos, giraffes, other bats, antelopes like impalas, nylas, and kudus, as well as a variety of birds, have fruit as part of their diet to some degree. Nutritious fruits are rich in calories and carbs, and by carbs I mean sugars, which are an important source of energy, and of course they have other essential vitamins and minerals. In the fight for survival, access to fruit can help certain species endure the harshness of the wild, so the role of seed disperser is essential, especially when many animals are forced to migrate great distances across sub-Saharan Africa to follow seasonally available food sources. While there are numerous species that play the role of seed dispersers throughout the Egyptian fruit bat's range, that does not make their contribution any less important, especially since many seed dispersing species are declining or regionally extinct, such as elephants, rhinos, great apes, giraffes, and certain species of bird. These bats also play a role, to a lesser extent, as pollinators. In fact, certain baobab trees greatly rely on fruit bats to help pollinate their flowers. And a fun side note, trees that have co-evolved strong or dependent relationships with bats are called chiropterophily, which means bat-loving. So, baobabs are bat-loving trees. Anyway, baobabs are critical to the African savanna habitats like the Serengeti, 
so much so that they've earned the name Tree of Life due to their nutrient-dense fruits sought out by wildlife and people alike, as well as the baobab's cultural and economic benefits, which I'll touch on later. Typically, flowers will appear on fruiting trees before the actual fruit does, so when fruit is scarce, the Egyptian fruit bats will supplement part of their diet with flowers. Pollen from the flowers can hitch a ride on the bat's fur or on their faces, and as these bats travel to other trees, they help to spread that pollen. While fruit bats are not primary pollinators the way that bees or butterflies are, with how important seasonally available food sources are, their ecological service of pollinating baobab trees and other local fruit trees is still a huge boon to other species that benefit from the availability of these plants. They are also mutualistic as seed dispersers or pollinators with carob species, common lilacs, different fig species, laquat species, and mulberry species. So now that we have an idea of their environmental value, let's shift into their cultural value. Bats are found on every continent except Antarctica, so naturally they have found their way into human myths and legends. In many of these cultural stories, the species of bat are not usually specified, so I will mention some of the bat myths and legends from areas where the Egyptian fruit bat occurs, but I cannot say if any of these things are actually about this specific type of bat. Despite their common name, there are no bat deities from ancient Egypt that I personally know of, though there is the goddess Bat, which is technically a cow goddess, so no relation. Bats were considered medicinal by the ancient Egyptians for a variety of ailments, such as poor eyesight, to fever, to toothaches, and even baldness. There are still some modern cultures that believe consuming bats has medicinal properties, but unfortunately, bats make great carriers for zoonotic diseases, which can end up sickening people rather than protecting or curing them if they don't carefully prepare said bats. There are a few legends about bats in West Africa. In Sierra Leone, the bat is responsible for bringing darkness to the world, and not necessarily like darkness like evil and in a bad way, actual darkness. In one of their local legends, the sun shone every day and the moon shone every night, so there was never any true darkness in the world. And please forgive me if I butcher this word to anybody that actually knows how to pronounce it. The god Yata put darkness in a basket and gave it to a bat to carry to the moon. The bat took a break, though, during its journey to look for food, and other curious animals investigated the basket and accidentally released the darkness into the world. This legend says that bats are active at night because they're trying to regather that darkness again. So, while the bat's role is not necessarily nefarious, it's not necessarily positive since the bat let loose the darkness. For the bats themselves in our world, it's a good thing because they rely on darkness to protect them. It's a much less predator-heavy time to be out and about. So technically, this legend works in their favor, but I can't say for sure based on what I read whether or not the people who believe in this myth or who started this myth thought that it was necessarily negative. But I would certainly hope any creature contributing to the natural world as we know it should be positive, but 
I that's just me projecting. It's not my culture and it's not my say. So I don't know whether or not this is a bad story or not. I personally think it's kind of cool, though. In Nigeria, bats have mixed reputations depending on the region and culture. Bats can be seen as good omens, though they can also be associated with witches and witchcraft, which has led to bat persecution. In one Nigerian legend, Emiong, the jealous bat, tricks his friend, Oyat, the bushrat, into bathing in a boiling hot pot of water. This causes Oyat to die. To avoid being captured for his crime, Emiong begins to only fly at night. So this legend was meant to explain why bats were nighttime animals. However, legends like this don't exactly help the bat's negative image among culture. Whether or not the bats already had a negative reputation before the legend, or if the legend caused it, either way, the result has still fed into that negative perception of bats. Bats have also been used in traditional voodoo, which was introduced to North America through the African diaspora, mainly through those descended from the enslaved Thon people of West Africa. The bats are primarily used to make talismans called juju or grigri. Um, again, I'm so sorry if I'm saying any of this wrong. The talismans are used for healing or protecting the wearer from bad luck. In the Congo, the Nyanga people have traditionally believed in Yana, the bat god, and his people, the Baniyana. There's also a cryptid legend in Cameroon of a giant bat, or potentially a pterosaur, depending on who you ask, with a 12-foot wingspan and a monkey-like face called Olita. Olita. I really don't know how to say these things. While I couldn't find much for the Middle East as far as bats in culture, mythology, or legend, I do have a nice little random tidbit for you. In modern standard Arabic, one of the ways that you can say bat is what what. So the first syllable is quick, what? Like you're just asking somebody like what? And the second syllable, you hold the ah just a little bit. So think what, like a light bulb what, but just hold that a what so what what so just thought i'd share that now you know a word for saying bat in the singular form yay <laughs> in modern times egyptian fruit bats and other mega bats face unwarranted persecution for the belief that they consume large amounts of fruit crops despite there being no evidence proving that they have any significant impact on the local industries Middle Eastern countries like Israel are especially critical of these bats and have fumigated their caves, killing entire colonies of Egyptian fruit bats. Thankfully, there are conservationists on the ground in Africa and the Middle East who are working to change the perception that people have of bats and to help them understand the positive impacts these animals have on the environment and the economy. Speaking of economy... Let's see how they have benefited the economies of some of the countries that they are native to. Megabats can play quite a role as seed dispersers and pollinators. They help to disperse the seeds of and pollinate an estimated 450 commercially valuable plants around the world, and they can help regenerate areas that have been deforested. Now, some of what I'm about to discuss will be relevant to both their cultural and economic value, but I had plenty of stuff for the cultural value, so 
these things got put in the economic value section. First off, the role of Egyptian fruit bats as seed dispersers and pollinators was already touched on, but I really want to expand on this. Specifically, I want to talk about how important the African baobab tree, Adansonia digitata, is to mainland African cultures. These aren't just trees for fruit and wood. Nearly every aspect of a baobab tree has value to the people who use them. The leaves of African baobab trees can be boiled and eaten just like other greens, or they can be made into a powder or sauce. The baobab's fruit is rich in nutrients, and it can even dry naturally on the branch to be turned into a powder. The pulp of the fruit can be made into juices and jams or fermented into beer. The African baobab seeds can be just eaten, or they can be roasted to make a coffee-like drink, and they're also sources of oil that can be used for cooking or cosmetics. And finally, the bark can be used to make fibers for rope and clothing, or the bark can be used for dye or even fuel. Entire communities are sometimes built around these baobab trees because they can obviously provide so many resources to the local people. It is estimated that baobab trees provide hundreds of millions of dollars in economic services to the more than 30 countries where they grow, and in the future they might provide over a billion dollars by some estimates. With megabats as the primary pollinators of these valuable trees, species like the Egyptian fruit bat are crucial in helping these trees thrive so that they may continue to provide environmental, cultural, and economic services to the people that rely on them. Second is the ability of megabats to help restore forested habitats. While other animals like birds can also contribute to the recovery of a forest, bats are actually better equipped for it. Larger megafauna like elephants, rhinos, antelopes, and primates can help disperse seeds into forested regions and help the land recover, but fruit isn't always a mainstay of some of these animals' diets, and they do tend to drop pretty big loads in only one place periodically, versus birds and bats, which have much faster metabolisms, which means they're putting out little droppings more often in more places. However, most birds prefer not to fly over large open spaces where they are vulnerable to predation. Since birds are diurnal, they're usually out when many of their predators are. So if an area has been leveled due to a natural disaster or human deforestation, then the birds may not visit these spaces very often, which leads to less seed dispersal. Bats, on the other hand, are not as fearful about flying over these open spaces, and not only can they drop their little bat loads all over these places, but they might also be carrying fruit. And if they accidentally drop said fruit, then that is a secondary mode of seed dispersal. As the bats help these deforested areas begin to recover, and there is more plant coverage, then more animals will begin to visit these spaces, some of whom will be seed dispersers. This will exponentially accelerate the recovery of these areas as more of these seed dispersers visit. So, even though many people who share the same land as Egyptian fruit bats vilify and even persecute them, these incredible animals continue to provide services that protect the health of both humans and wildlife. 
There are conservationists, though, who are working hard to change the narrative surrounding bats and teaching people how to peacefully coexist with their furry-flighted neighbors. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. For this episode and upcoming episodes about the Egyptian fruit bat, I cite some information from the AZA Regional Stud Book for Egyptian Fruit Bats, the IUCN, Animal Diversity Web, and Bat Conservation International. I will be releasing additional mini-sodes that focus on this species throughout the month, so stay tuned for more content. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to my email, thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com, and check out my website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. On social media, you'll find The Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on Twitter under the handle at nag underscore naturalist. And now I can say that you can leave me reviews on Apple Podcasts and, like I mentioned, podchaser.com to help support the podcast. If you love learning about wildlife and don't want to wait for another episode, be sure to check out some of these other wildlife and science-based podcasts. All Creatures Podcast, CritterCast, Just the Zoo of Us, Animals to the Max, Varmints, Amazing Wildlife Podcast, The Casual Birder, What Are You Podcast, The Songbirding Podcast, and Strange Animals Podcast, which are all safe for work. There's also Keeper Chat and Petri Dish, which are both great podcasts, but they are definitely not safe for work. I'm also on a non-wildlife podcast called The Legend of Portalcast, which discusses the world of Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for more about the wonderful world of wildlife. Welcome once again to Outtakes. It seems like I only really have these for the main episode, and it's probably because the main episodes are so long, and I have so much more room for mistakes. But here we go again with me just blundering my way through this episode. Hey everyone, and welcome to the lagging that na- the lagging naturalist. Right out of the gate, Kristen. Good job. Regenerate deforested regions, and it reduces competition. 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 What is that? Competition. Oh, let's try that again. Trees that have co-evolved strong or dependent relationships with bats are called chiroptera. Chi. Chiroptera. This is now a T. Oh, let's do that again. They are also mutualistic as seed dispersers or pollinators with caribou species. Carob. Carob species. Caribou. Oh my goodness, Kristen. From the top. The god Yata, 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 Yata. God, I'm butchering this, aren't I? In one Nigerian legend, Emagong the Ja... Emagong. There's only one G in it, Kristen. My name's Doug Emagong, owner of the Dimsdale Emagong. Let's do this again. 
in the Congo, the Nyanga people, not Nyanga, Nyanga. Oh, it's not blocks you tip over. There is a cryptid legend in Cameroon of an, of a, oh, what did I write? There's a cryptid legend in Cameroon of, oh, a giant bat. Oh my gosh. I can't read today. Specifically, I want to talk about how important the African baobab tree is. Adon, Adon, why am I trying to say Adonis? Adansonia, 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 I don't, what am I trying to say? I'm not entirely sure. It's certainly not a baobab tree that I'm trying to say, though. All Creatures Podcast, Critter Cast, Just the Shoe of Us. Shoe. <laughs> uh, sorry, Ellen and Christian. Just the shoe of us. That's your new podcast name. 